Good morning. The scripture reading this morning will come from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And if you're using the Red Pew Bible, it'll, come, it'll be on page 811. Matthew 6, 9 to, through 13. Pray them like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. May God add a blessing to the readers and the doers of his word. I'd like to spend a few moments this morning talking to us all about our prayer lives. And I'd like for you just to think for a moment about what your prayers are like. Are you thoughtful when you pray? Do you pray at all? Unfortunately, many would have to say, prayer's not a part of my life. Prayer's not something that I habitually, routinely am involved in, talking to my Father in heaven. But I'd like for us just to consider some things for a few moments this morning because Jesus put a priority on prayer. We read this past week, Matthew chapter 6 as a congregation. And did you notice as you read that chapter that in Matthew chapter 6 verse 5, Jesus said, when you pray, go ahead and open your Bible to that passage. We're going to be there the entire lesson this morning. In Matthew 6 verse 5, when you pray, it is the Lord's expectation, it's the Lord's intention that you and I should be men and women of prayer. That those who follow Jesus would spend time talking to their heavenly father. That's, that's the expectation. And as we examine our lives and we think about how we're spending our days, is it the case that prayer is a priority for you? Jesus said, pray. And as you look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, I want you to notice that the passage breaks into two parts. The first section of the passage, Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8, talks about some wrong ways to pray. Some ways to pray that are not right, that are not appropriate, that are not rewarded by God. And then Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15, deals with some suggestions, a right way to pray. We're going to spend most of our time focused on that this morning, but just by way of introduction, let's address Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8. Jesus says there are some inappropriate ways for us to pray. If you notice, in Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6, he tells us that we ought to avoid hypocrisy in our prayers. And in Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8, he tells us we ought to avoid verbosity. More about that in a moment. In our prayers, verbosity, too many words with no real meaning behind them. 
So let's talk about hypocrisy, verses five and six. He says, when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites do. Don't pray just to be seen of men. When you and I pray, we are aware of one of two things. We are either aware of the presence of people or we are aware of the presence of God. And Jesus says when you pray, you ought to be supremely concerned with the presence of God, not what people think about you, not what so-and-so around you thinks about the way that you're offering this prayer, but rather, are you aware of the presence of God? Don't be like the hypocrites. They think they're going to get pats on the back for how spiritual their prayers sound. Don't be like that, Jesus says. They have their reward. If you're praying because because you want people to think that you're spiritual and you want people to have a high opinion of your faith, you got your reward. People have a high opinion of you. Congratulations. But God doesn't reward such prayers. He doesn't answer and hear such prayers seems to be the indication. Rather, there needs to be an awareness. I'm in the presence of God when I'm offering prayer, regardless of if I'm praying privately and alone or in an assembly like this. And secondly, in Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8, when you pray, don't be like the Gentiles who think that by many, many words, vain repetitions, that they're going to be heard for their much speaking. I'm reminded of 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah went to Mount Carmel, remember? And there was a contest as to who was the true God, Baal or God. And Elijah said, let's set up a contest. And you prophets of Baal, go ahead and cry out to your God and see if he'll answer you. And the prophets of Baal started from the beginning of the day until almost sunset. And the scripture says that nobody answered, nobody heard. But over and over and over for hours and hours and hours, these pagans cried out to their God thinking that if they just cried a little bit louder, if they just talked a little bit longer, that eventually Baal, their God, was going to answer them. Jesus says, when you pray to God, don't make it about the length of your prayer, but rather about the content of your prayer. Elijah, by contrast, in 1 Kings chapter 18, he offered 63 humble words and fire fell from heaven and consumed not only the sacrifice, but the water around the altar itself. God hears and answers prayer, and it has nothing to do particularly with the length of prayer. And when we talk about verbosity, about the accumulation of many words, one of the things Jesus would have us to think about as he talks about inappropriate ways to pray pray, is about the use of repetition. If I pray before a meal, most of my prayers before a meal are very, very similar, if not identical. There is nothing wrong with praying the same prayer more than once. There is something wrong with praying the same prayer and not thinking about and not really intending what you're saying. There is something wrong with offering a prayer to God that is heartless and meaningless. There's something wrong with that. And that's what Jesus is getting at. It's not wrong to have the same prayer. It's wrong to have the same prayer when we're not really thinking about what we're saying to God. That's what Jesus is getting at, verbosity. It's not the words that you say, it's about the intent behind those words. And so if you're gonna thank God for your food, for example, be thankful for your food in that moment. Be aware of the presence of God in that moment. Be aware of what you are doing in that moment. And so Jesus begins talking about prayer by challenging us 
It's not about being seen of men. It's not about how many words you accumulate. And it's not about the repetition of phrases over and over and over. That's not what makes a prayer a prayer. It's rather about being in secret with your heavenly father. It's about your relationship with him. And with those things in mind then, beginning in Matthew 6, verse 9, Jesus tells us, in this manner, pray. Pray like this. Look at Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray like this. Pray in this manner. A couple of things before we start studying this prayer this morning. I want you to notice first, Jesus did not say that this is a strict formula for prayer. I don't believe Jesus ever intended for it to be a strict formula for prayer. As a matter of fact, the prayers I read in the Old Testament and in the New Testament vary considerably from this one. Read Paul's prayers in Ephesians or in Romans, for example. Very different from what Jesus prescribes here. But what he does, Jesus, in this passage, is to give us some guidelines to consider when it comes to where our emphasis lies in prayer. And brothers and sisters and friends, I think every one of us, every one of us, no matter how deep and rich your prayer life, we can profit from studying afresh this prayer. Secondly, I'd like you to observe that this is not the Lord's prayer per se. I know that's what many people call it, the Lord's prayer. It asks for forgiveness of sins. Look at verses 12 and 13, forgive us our debts. Jesus could never have prayed this prayer because he was without sin, 1 Peter 2, verses 21 and 22. It is a model prayer, however. Pray like this, in this manner. This is the style, this is the attitude. These are the concerns of someone who would pray. Notice third, as you look at Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, the prayer is in two parts. The prayer concerns, part number one, the glory and the name and the kingdom and the authority of God. It's all about God and about what he's doing in the world. Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10. It's all about God's purpose and God's program. When was the last time you and I in our prayers thought about what God is trying to do? When was the last time we thought about how his name is being treated? So the first part of this prayer, verses 9 and 10, deals with God and his glory and his purpose in the world. And then verses 11 through 13, second part of the prayer, deals with man's needs, our daily bread, forgiveness, lead us not into temptation. That's things that you and I need. Interestingly, it deals with the present, the past, and the future when it talks about man's needs. What do I need in the present? My daily bread. What do I need from my past regarding my past? Forgiveness of my sins. What do I need in my future? I need God to lead me in the ways of righteousness and not lead me into temptation. I need him to, to deliver me from the evil. And so as you look at this prayer, it's profound. There's a lot to think about as we consider our own prayer lives this morning. And that's all I'm asking you to do. Just consider how you pray. Consider seven aspects of this model prayer in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, and how they are or are not maybe a part of your life as a, as a prayerful person. In the first place this morning, as you look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus says, pray like this, pray in this manner. He doesn't mean that you have to recite this prayer verbatim. 
As a matter of fact, nobody else in the Bible is ever recorded as having prayed this particular prayer. It's not recorded anywhere else. Maybe they did, maybe Paul and Peter and James and some of those others in the New Testament, maybe they prayed in their private lives, but they certainly didn't record it anywhere else in Scripture that they were praying this way. But pray like this. First consideration, God's fatherhood. God is our Father, our Father in heaven. Do you know that even though that is familiar to us, that was really strange in the ears of the Jews in the first century? When you read the book of Psalms, Psalms addresses God in a lot of ways. He is a rock, he is a fortress, he is a deliverer, he is a shield. He is the God of all gods. God is described in a lot of ways, but only on a couple of occasions in the book of Psalms can you ever find a reference to God as Father. And when Jews would customarily pray, Jews in Jesus' day would address God reverentially. They would address Him as the sovereign God, the God who saved Israel. They'd address Him that way. But Jesus says, no, no, if you're my disciple, If you belong to me, when you pray, say, our Father. And every time Jesus is is recorded as having prayed, in every single instance, 70 plus times in your New Testament, Jesus calls God Father. The only time Jesus did not call God Father is on the cross when he was quoting a scripture My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 46. Every other time Jesus is recorded as having prayed, he said, Father. What's in that word, Father? It's a recognition of our relationship and our closeness and our intimacy with God as a result of what Jesus has done for us at the cross. Jesus taught us, his disciples, to pray, our Father in heaven. Who is God to me? God is a loving, patient, attentive, wise Father. And he's watching what's happening in your life. And he knows everything that's going on in your life. And like a father, he cares and he loves you. By virtue of the fact that you are his creation, he is your father. Revelation 4 verse 11. But even more than that, by virtue of the fact that you are a Christian, he is your father. And that's the sense in which Jesus really wants us to think about that word, father. When you became a Christian, you were adopted into the family of God. Galatians chapter 4 verses 6 and 7. We have the spirit of adoption, thereby we cry, Abba, Father. We have a relationship with God that is new. And therefore, when we address the God of heaven, we can address him as a loving, caring father. There are a lot of bad fathers in the world. I wish it were not true. I wish that every child had a father who parented like God. But all of us who are fathers have to admit we fall woefully short. God is the ideal father. He only gives good things to his children, James 1 verse 17. And therefore, as we come into his presence, we ought to think about who we're talking to. He is a father who cares about us. 
And he's a father who wants to bless us. And he's a father who wants to hear from us. And sometimes people will say, well, why should I pray? If it says in Matthew 6, verse 8, that your father knows what you need before you even ask him, I mean, why ask? The answer is found in the fatherhood of every man who's ever lived. Every father, listen up, young people, every father wants to hear from his children. Every father wants to hear words that describe relationship with his children. Everybody wants that. It's, it's wired into dads. And God is saying, I want to hear from you. I know what you need. Even before you ask, I know what you need, but I want the relationship. That's what I want. And so when you and I come into the presence of God, we pray, our Father, and notice the words, in heaven. Where is our Father? He's in heaven. I'm glad I have a PA system. When I was younger, I might have been able to yell to this audience and you folks at the back, I might have been able for you to hear me consistently for 20 or 30 minutes. I can't do that these days. Have you ever thought about the fact that even though we have to yell from here to there to be heard clearly, you can go into your closet and you can whisper and heaven can hear you as clearly as day. Our Father in heaven. And by the way, notice the plural pronouns in this prayer, our Father. We are part of a family, and that's recognized in this prayer as well. When I come before God, it's not just me and Him. When I come before God, I'm part of a family. In our prayer lives, some of us get in the habit of addressing God as Lord or addressing God as God. And we speak to Him that way. Let me ask you to consider when was the last time you called God your father and addressed him that way? God's fatherhood. Second consideration, God's reverence. Hallowed be your name. We don't use that word, hallowed. It used to be a really common English word and the word means to treat something as holy or reverent to treat something as holy or reverent. And so what you find in this model prayer is balance. You find that God looks after my life. He cares for me. He wants to hear from me. He loves me as a father loves his child. And yet at the same time, he's not my buddy. He's not your pal that you could slap on the back and say, hey, it's great to see you and talk about, you know, talk to him with a familiarity like, like he's, He's just ordinary and he's common. He's not like that. Hallowed be your name. What we're asking for in this prayer at this point is for God's name to be treated with the gravitas, with the reverence that it deserves. And brothers and sisters and friends, it ought to start in our lives. Before we start looking at other people and how they use God's name and how they drag his name through the mud, those things happen, yes, all the time around us. Listen to how people in our society talk about New Testament Christianity and talk about God. Listen to how people speak about him. Hallowed be your name, O God. But before that, may your name be treated as holy and reverent in my life. How do you address God? The Bible intends for us to treat God's name reverently. He is a father and yet there is an awesome nature to God that none of us fully grasp. 
In Exodus 15 verse 11, after the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea, there was a song they sang. And the song goes like this in Exodus 15 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Awesome, majestic in holiness. Awesome in mighty deeds. Who among gods is like you? You are amazing. You're different. And when we pray, brothers and sisters and friends, we ought to pray about God's name and how it's being treated. The name of God stands for everything that represents God. It's not just, you know, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't do that. But it's more than that. It's about how we feel toward God. It's about how we think about God. You remember what the Proverbs writer says? Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Remember? There's something healthy about having a reverential fear of God. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13, fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. And so to hallow God's name, to treat it as reverent, that's something that God desires. God, I want to treat you with reverence and respect. I would not want to say anything that's blasphemous. I would not want to treat you in a way that is cavalier or casual. I don't want to treat God that way. And I don't want others to treat him that way either. The reverence that we have before God. Tell you something, you start praying like this, it's going to change the way you worship. It's going to change the way you think about what we're doing here right now. It's going to change your attitude toward what you're doing with your cell phone. It's going to change the way that you come to class or come to worship. It's going to change your attitude and the things that you're thinking as you come into God's presence because hallowed be your name. That's serious. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. Psalm 89 verse 7. Hallowed be your name. Pray that way. Third, this, this prayer, this model prayer talks about God's reign. Your kingdom come. Jesus taught this prayer prior to the cross and prior to Acts chapter 2. If you are a Bible student, you will recognize that the kingdom has arrived. The kingdom of God arrived in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And they preached the first gospel sermon with its implications for their lives. And 3,000 people were added to their number on that day. Acts chapter 2 verses 41 through 47. The kingdom has arrived. And so we, as we pray, we ought to be concerned about the kingdom, but the kingdom is a present reality. Don't say, God, may your kingdom come in that sense. But God, you can pray this, may your kingdom increase. May your kingdom grow. May the people who are hearing your word give their hearts and lives obediently to you. Because that's how the kingdom grows. Why do we teach and preach from God's word? Because Christianity is a religion that begins with information. It begins with an understanding of the gospel. And then when somebody responds to the gospel, the kingdom grows by one more person, one more heart. God, may your kingdom increase. Do you pray that way? Do you pray for the church? Do you pray for the success of God's kingdom, for the relevance of God's kingdom in the world in which we live? God, may your kingdom grow and increase and may you rule in the hearts of more and more and more people. And as we pray that aspect of the prayer, you and I ought to think about the people in our direct experience in our lives 
that are not part of the kingdom. It's an evangelistic prayer. God, may your kingdom, your rule, your reign, may it be seen in the hearts of the people that I love, that I work with, that I care about. Next, number four, God's will. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God has a will. Notice the first part of the prayer is all about God. It's all about what he wants. It's all about what he's doing. It's all about his work in the world. May your will be done on earth. And then there's a qualifier, as it is in heaven. So one of the first things we ought to do is stop and ask ourselves, how is God's will done in heaven? If God says, I want such and such to take place, there are angels in heaven, the Bible tells us. How do the angels respond when God's word goes forth from his mouth? Do the angels say, well, you know what? We're going to have to convene a conference and decide exactly what God meant when he said. Do the angels say, we're busy right now, but a little bit later, we'll take care of your will. Do the angels, in response to God's commands, do they say, not again? Really? He's giving us another commandment? Is that how the angels respond to God's will? How is God's will done in heaven? It is done joyfully, always joyfully. It is done immediately, always immediately. There's no second guessing. There's no questioning. There's no, what do you think he meant by that? It's always done completely. They do everything the Lord commands. Those angels do. And so when we pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is his will being done joyfully in our hearts, in our lives? Are we glad to be part of God's kingdom and serving the God who saved us? Are we quick about doing his will or do we drag our feet? Are we committed to serving and completing the tasks and the challenges and the obligations and the responsibilities that God has placed before us? May your will be done in my life on earth as it is in heaven. And I also think about people around us. I think about the world in which we live. I think about the nations. You know, God tells us to pray for nations. There's nothing about that in this particular prayer per se. But you think about what's going on in the world around us and the things that we are concerned about and worry about. God, may your will be done in those situations as it is in heaven. I can't do a whole lot personally about a lot of the things, the decisions that nations are making, but I can talk to the one who can. And God wants that too. May your will be done. And may more people come to be part of your kingdom as a result of whatever's going on in various parts of the world. Notice now when you get to Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, God's provision. Give us this day our daily bread. That's a humble prayer. He's not asking for much, is he? He's asking for enough bread for one day. He's not asking for caviar and steak. He's not asking for his favorite meal. He's asking for bread, just something to eat. And he's asking for one day's worth. You know what this part of the prayer teaches us? It is right and it is good for us to pray about physical necessities because our Father cares about those things. It is right and it is good for us to pray about people who are sick and people who are hungry and people who have needs, physical needs. 
it's right and it's good for us to pray about those things. This part of the prayer also teaches us, listen carefully. We're not supposed to be depending on our bank accounts and our stash and how much stuff we have saved up. We're not supposed to be putting our trust and our confidence in those things. We are supposed to put our trust in God one day at a time, day after day after day. God, give me this day my daily bread. This is a prayer for long-term caregivers. There are some of us that are long-term caregivers to loved ones, to people that we care about. And you sometimes wonder when you're living that life, how long am I going to need to do this? I do it gladly. I want to do it because it's God's will. It's hard to be glad about it sometimes, but I do it gladly. I try to do it quickly. I try to do it completely. But how long, how much longer am I going to have to do this? And this part of the prayer, we can pray, God, give me the strength and the provision to get through today. And then you wake up tomorrow and you say, God, give me the strength and the provision to get through tomorrow. And then you wake up the day after tomorrow and you say, God, give me this day, my daily bread. That is a life of faith. One day at a time. Give us this day our daily bread. You pray like that? Thanks for my two-week paycheck, God. Thanks for my monthly bank deposit. I'll check in, check in with you next month. Give me this day my daily bread. God's pardon. Jesus goes from the physical to the spiritual. Did you notice? My daily bread, verse 11. My sins, verse 12. Forgive us our debts. We need to be forgiven by God. And Jesus tells us that forgiveness happens when we ask for it in prayer. Father, I need you to forgive me. There are things in my life that are not right. There are decisions I've made that are sinful. Please forgive me. Forgiveness begins, brothers and sisters and friends, when we come to Christ and we repent and are baptized for the remission of our sins. We come into contact with the blood of Jesus in the waters of baptism. And from that point on, when it comes to sin, we are to confess our sin and to request that God forgive us of our sin. First John chapter one, verse nine tells us, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God cares about us and he will forgive your sin. Forgive us of our debts, ask him for that. Incidentally, if you're not praying, if this is not a habit in your life, thoughtful prayer, you are probably unaware or oblivious to the sin in your life. I want you to think about that. If we're not praying thoughtfully, continually, talking to our Heavenly Father and doing the kinds of things that Jesus counsels us to do here, we're probably pretty oblivious to what's going on in our hearts and our lives that's sinful, that displeases Him. Forgive us of our debts. And then there's a qualifier, as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the one part of this prayer where Jesus really wants to bring the hammer down on our hearts. And here's what he's saying. It is hypocritical for you to ask God to forgive you if you are unwilling to forgive somebody else. You got a grudge? You got some kind of ax to grind with somebody else? You got some malice and animosity towards somebody else? 
You're gonna, you're gonna hold on to something that somebody did wrong. You're not gonna let that go. You've got the root of bitterness in your heart. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. If that's the way that you are living your life, it is hip- hypocritical, it's hypocrisy to come to God and say, God, forgive me. I'm not gonna forgive so-and-so over there. You just don't know what they've done. You don't know how bad they've hurt me. I'm not gonna forgive them, but God, forgive me. Jesus says in verses 14 and 15 of this chapter, if you will not forgive those who've trespassed against you, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. The implication seems to be this, God is going to judge us and hold us to the standard by which we judge and hold others to a standard. God's going to treat us the way we treat other people, said another way. We need God's forgiveness. And we need to pray and ask for his forgiveness with an attitude and a heart that says, I want to be at peace with other people too. And then notice God's protection. He's talked about the present, give us this day our daily bread. He's talked about the past, forgive us our sins. And now this prayer concludes with, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. We live in a messed up world. I know that's not news to you. We live in a world that's full of people who are sick with sin. And what the prayer is doing is saying, God, I don't know what steps to take sometimes. I don't know what decisions to make sometimes. And so as I make decisions regarding my future, as I make choices regarding what seems best, God, please be a part of this decision-making process. Give me wisdom, James chapter one, verse five, to know how to be led in a way that I'm not willingly welcoming myself into a place where there's temptation. You know, sometimes we decide that there are some things that are enticing about sin, about sinful situations. So we put ourselves in situations intentionally where, you know, I'm not gonna go through with it, but it'd be nice to be in the situation. And we kind of think about it that way. God, I live in a sin-sick world. I wanna be holy. I wanna be right. I wanna be salt and light to the world around me deliver us from evil. There is evil all around. God, deliver me. The apostle Paul would write in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil work, every evil deed, every evil intent that men have against me. The Lord will deliver me from all those things. God has promised to protect us, but he wants us to talk to him about that. And he wants us to come to him and to petition him and to ask him, lead me in the way that I should go. Deliver me from the things that would harm me and that would harm your kingdom. Help me to walk in a way that pleases you. I began the lesson this morning by asking about your prayer life and my only question I wanna leave you with is this. When you think about all that's said in this model prayer, Are you praying thoughtfully? My challenge to you this week, think about what you're saying to God. Think about how you're addressing God. Think about the things that you're asking of God, that you're saying to God, and ask yourself the question, does the way I'm talking to God right now, does it fully reflect that I'm concerned about his glory and his purpose in the world? And does it reflect that I'm concerned about these needs that only he can meet? Do my prayers reflect that?
If we can help you to obey the gospel this morning, if we can help you by praying with you, we'd love to do that. Why don't you come as together we stand and as we sing.